You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The date was October 23, 1944. It was the first day of the largest naval battle in history, the Battle of Leyte Gulf. The podcast obviously is not there yet, 1944. It won't be there for quite a while. But I recently got to read a new book on the topic, Leyte Gulf, A New History of the World's Largest Sea Battle. Leyte Gulf is a really interesting battle, not just because of its size, but because of how it was structured. By 1944, the American naval dominance in the Pacific was pretty much unassailable. After years of attritional battles, the Imperial Japanese Navy simply was not the well-oiled machine that it had been when the war started in late 1941. But in the seas off the Philippines, the Japanese were able to construct a scenario where most of the strength of the American Navy was not guarding the Japanese Navy's primary target, the landing forces, but were instead chasing Japanese carriers to the north. The carriers were simply a decoy, and they were opening the door to the possibility of a major Japanese naval victory, or at least that door was open in theory, maybe not in reality. In the end, it would not be a great victory, or a victory at all, for the Japanese, and instead the Japanese efforts would result simply in thousands of more Japanese deaths and the loss of some of the few large naval vessels remaining for the Imperial Japanese Navy. And it didn't really have any negative impact on the plans, preparations, or actions of the American forces. With that background out of the way, let's jump into the interview. Hello everyone, and welcome to another History of the Second World War interview. This time, I'm joined by Mark Stilley, the author of Leyte Gulf, A New History of the World's Largest Sea Battle. Thank you for joining me here for the interview, and I'm just going to start off with kind of a basic question. What prompted you to want to write a book on the Battle of Leyte Gulf? Hi, Wesley, and uh, thanks for inviting me on your podcast. I look forward to talking to your listeners about this battle because I've always found this battle to be very fascinating. I'm drawn to it because it's Really, there's nothing like it in naval history uh, due to its size and complexity. And in particular, I was drawn to the Japanese side. I just wanted to understand more why they would fight such an apparently desperate and hopeless battle. But having said all that, the biggest reason why I wrote this book is because the accepted history of the battle just didn't smell right to me. Uh, There's a lot of mythology, even today, still wound up in the battle. And this book is my attempt to set the record straight. So I'm sure we're going to talk about these mythologies later on in the podcast, but stuff like the Halsey controversy, uh, the way he's been criticized just didn't seem right to me. It sounded to me like this was based purely on 2020 hindsight. And it's not that I'm a Halsey apologist, but I think in this case, he was right. And there's even a bigger mythology wound up in the battle, that being that Japanese threw away this chance for victory. And 
when you look at this more, which I did in the book, uh, that's that's just utter nonsense. So I did want to write this book and, and try to set the record straight on these important aspects of the battle. You don't know this about me, but a great way to get me to read your entire book is to start off an introduction by discussing how the book is going to focus itself around myths that have built up around a certain historical event, which is exactly what your book does. With that said, it would probably be good to start with one of those myths, and the one that would precipitate the battle. Leyte Gulf would occur relatively late in the war, in October 1944. Given the overall state of the war in the Pacific at this point in the conflict, what were the Japanese trying to achieve with their plans? And were those goals realistic in any way? Yeah, that's a, a very good question, and it is uh, one of the first myths of the battle. And and to me, I think the Japanese plan is maybe the most fascinating part of the battle. So we do have to talk briefly about the overall balance in October 1944, and that kind of uh, you know is the is the basic premise upon which our our, our battle, uh, our understanding of the battle is based. So the overall balance at this time of the war. The Americans bought, brought a total of 235 major combatants to the battle, and a major combatant is a destroyer-sized ship or above. And the Japanese scraped up everything they could, pretty much everything left on the Imperial fleet, but they could only muster 69 ships for the battle. And obviously that's, that's not a good force balance for the Japanese. It was even worse with uh, aircraft. The Americans brought 1,500 aircraft uh, on the on the carriers of the 7th and 3rd Fleet, and the Japanese only could bring about 375 aircraft, both land-based and, and carrier-based. So uh, the force balance obviously is weighed heavily against the Japanese, and this really means that there's no good options for the Japanese at this point. And therefore, there really isn't a prospect for victory uh, in this battle. But the Japanese do put together a plan uh, it's called Shogo, or Victory Operation, and the plan is very ambitious. Uh, the, the stated goals of the plan are to stop the American invasion of Leyte, and in the process to, to fight and win a decisive battle against the Americans. So uh, your question is, was this plan realistic? Well, no. I mean, they had, they had no possibility of achieving either, either of their stated goals. Uh, for example, the, the objective of stopping the invasion of Leyte, uh, the, the Japanese didn't have any good intelligence about exact American intentions. They were able to discern through uh, their own assessments. They understood how the Americans operated and what their timetables for operations were. But so using that, they were able to discern that Americans were probably going to land in Leyte, on Leyte, uh, sometime mid-October, but that's not the same as knowing when the invasion would occur. So that means that they could not deploy their fleet ahead of time and stop the invasion. So the Americans land on late day on 20 October, and for various reasons, the main Japanese force can't get there until 25 October. So uh, that, that right there tells you this whole plan is fatuous, uh, because by 25 October, the American amphibious force has come and gone. So there's 132,000 men and 200,000 tons of supply on Leyte by 25 October. So the invasion has occurred. The Japanese cannot stop it. 
with the plan that they're using uh, for this battle. Uh, and there's no way that they can fight and win a decisive battle. We talked about the force balance. And the big thing is the, the Japanese lacked air power. They lacked effective air power for the battle. So given that, there's no way they're going to beat the American fleet. Uh, there were a lot of other uh, you know, problems with the plan. And the book goes into, into those with, in great detail. I, I, I really uh, enjoy uh, tearing apart uh, bad planning. And I try to do that in the book. But so the bottom line is that, that the Shogo, or in this case, it's Show One is the variant they used to defend the Philippines, that this was a plan based on desperation. And the guy that came up with this plan was Admiral Toyota. And he was in this use or lose mentality that he thought he had to use the fleet or when the Americans cut the sea lanes between Japan and the resource areas of Southeast Asia that the fleet wouldn't be able to operate effectively anyhow. And there is some truth to that. Uh, but the battle is based on desperation. And the bottom line of this whole plan is it was not a serious plan for victory. Uh, it, was, it was more a, a vehicle to give the combined fleet a fitting end. And uh, that's gone in, into in great detail in the book, but this is simply a plan of desperation. That makes a lot of sense, given the stage of the war that this takes place in and the resources they had available. The idea that it was never going to get better for them. And so the idea that maybe using the fleet for something rather than sort of see it continue to waste away, it seems like a logical conclusion. I kind of understand how, how you would get there. Yeah, I, I wouldn't go that far, though. I mean, it, it's a, I mean his, his thinking is logical if, as far as it goes, but uh, I think they need if, if the plan is is not going to achieve its objectives and has no possibility of doing that, you need to step back and think of something different. And yes, it's true they had no good options at this point, but the book also makes the the case that perhaps there was a better option that, uh, that both the Imperial Navy and the Imperial Army signed up to fighting this decisive battle on Leyte, and perhaps a better play would have been to fight. Decisive battle for the Philippines, not on Leyte, where it was very, it was going to be very hard to defend, to supply a, a, a ground force on the island. But it would be much better to wait a few months, build your forces up, and make your your decisive battle uh, for Luzon, not for Leyte. But they didn't do that. They didn't even think about that. So we're we're talking about Leyte, not Luzon. Now, easily the most discussed decision that would occur during this battle had nothing to do with the Japanese, and was instead Halsey's decision to take his carriers and chase after the Japanese carrier forces to the north. In your book, you make a point of mentioning that this is one of those decisions that is really easy to criticize in hindsight, but if you look at the information that Halsey had at the time, it, it makes a lot more sense. What were some of Halsey's reasons for making the decisions that he did and that are maybe discounted when looking at the events and his decisions after the battle or from the modern viewpoint. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right there, is that people that criticize Halsey uh, do so with 2020 hindsight. So we need to look at what he thought and what he knew at the time. Uh, and we, we have to talk about the Japanese plan in a bit more detail to understand what's happening here. So as part of the the plan, which I just uh, said was was terrible, there was a, a clever diversionary aspect in the plan, and the Japanese carrier force, which had been 
had been rendered combat ineffective in June, a few months before, trying to defend the Marianas, uh, the Japanese weren't able to rebuild their carrier force. So it really wasn't able to take a, a major role in the battle. But they did figure out what to do with it, and that was to use it as a diversion to to bring the largest American fleet, and that was the one under Halsey, the third fleet under Halsey. Uh, they were going to dangle the carrier force to the north and entice Halsey to move after it and therefore give the main battleship force under this guy named Corita a chance to swing through the San Bernardino Strait and head south into Leyte Gulf. So uh, to be fair to the Japanese, that, that was a, a clever aspect of the plan. Now, it wasn't; they shouldn't get too much credit for this. It's not like they sat down and they thought, well, we know Halsey's in charge of the Third Fleet. You know, he's a very aggressive guy, and uh, we are going to lure him with this carrier force because we, we know he'll go, he'll go after it. It wasn't like that, but they did know that the Americans uh, appreciated that the Japanese carrier force had always been throughout the war the primary Japanese threat. So that being the case, they were sure that the Americans would go for this again. So on the night of the 24th of October, Halsey has this decision to make. So throughout the day on 24 October, he had used his carrier aircraft to strike Karita's battleship force that was coming through the Subuyan Sea towards San Bernardino Strait. So he launched five strikes during the day. Uh, his aviators reported great success against the Kurita force. Uh, in fact, they did not achieve as much as they had hoped. They did sink a battleship, and they forced a heavy cruiser to go back to Singapore. But that was it. So all things being equal, Kurita fared as well as he could expect throughout the day with no air power as he was being pounded by Halsey's aviators on the 24th. So at, on the end of the 24th, he is still combat effective. Uh, but Halsey's decisions, and, and late while this is occurring, while Halsey is striking the Kurita fleet in the Subuyan Sea, he finally locates the Japanese diversionary carrier force at about 4 o'clock, 4.40 in the afternoon of the 24th. So it's too late to launch a strike at that time. So now that night he has to decide. So he has several different options open to him. He can go north after the carrier force that has identified as part of it four carriers and two battleships. So it's a, it's a large force. Halsey does not know, nor can he know, that it's, it's largely a toothless force that has no aircraft well, it has very few aircraft, only 29. It has very few aircraft remaining aboard these carriers. It's essentially powerless. Uh, but Halsey cannot know that. Uh, he, can, he could sit back and guard San Bernardino Strait because he does know through his night scout aircraft that the Corita fleet, after some uh, you know, indecision by Corita, has turned back around and it's headed towards San Bernardino Strait. So he could guard the strait, or he could do a combination of the two. He could go after both forces at once. He's got a very large fleet. The third fleet is immense, and he could have done that. Uh, so he has three choices, essentially, to choose from. And he decides after some discussion on his staff that he's going to do number one, that is go north with the fleet. 
and he's going to go north with everything. He's not even he's he's not even going to monitor the San Bernardino Strait. Uh, he's going north with everything, and there are lots of reasons for this, uh, and all of them add up to what I think is a preordained decision that he is going to go north and strike the Japanese carrier force. And first of all, there's his mindset. Uh, he's a very aggressive commander. And once he has an opportunity to strike, and here's the main Japanese force, the carrier force, uh, just 180 miles away, there's no doubt what he's going to do. Also, he has orders from Nimitz to do this because uh, we mentioned that carrier battle in June. Uh, the American admiral there, Spruins, fought a, a very conservative battle. He won the battle, but in the process, most of the Japanese carriers escaped. So the Japanese carrier force has not been destroyed, even though it's vastly outnumbered by the Americans at this point. So Nimitz orders Halsey that if there's an opportunity for him to strike the main Japanese fleet, then that becomes his primary task. And here to his north is the main Japanese fleet. And there's also doctrine, American naval doctrine, uh, which which states that you you fight the fleet together, you concentrate force for a decisive blow against the enemy. So uh, that kind of mitigates against any any mindset uh, to divide the force and do more than one mission. And there's how the battle developed. We talked about this. Uh, uh, there are several Japanese forces active in this battle in the in the Show One plan. One has been annihilated off uh, in the Surigao Strait. Uh, so Halsey knows that force is no longer a, a factor. The Corito force, he pummeled that the day before, uh, throughout the day on the 24th. And yes, it's still headed into the San Bernardino Strait. But he thinks that the 7th Fleet, that's the other American fleet in this battle, which is, has responsibility for the immediate security of the amphibious force, Seventh Fleet can can handle that force because it's it's been rendered somewhat combat ineffective by his airstrikes, and so the biggest threat in Halsey's mind certainly is the carrier force to the north, uh, and then he has this this uh, this mindset he's been taught uh, that you fight your force together. Uh, also, there's how his staff function. His staff probably wasn't a high functioning staff. There's no real debate on the option. So uh, Halsey indicates what he's thinking. There was at least one officer on the staff who didn't think that was a great idea. Uh, he tries to bring this up for discussion, and Halsey cuts off discussion. So there's not a lot of talk about the options here. And we shouldn't forget fatigue either, because Halsey's been up for a couple days now. Uh, he's quite fatigued when he's trying to make this this critical decision the night of the 24th. Uh, and when you're fatigued like he and his staff are, uh, you probably cannot devise a new solution on the fly. So if you want to look back at it with 2020 hindsight, like many have done, perhaps the perfect solution for Halsey would have been to divide his force and send part of it to deal with the creative force and then send another part uh, to go north and take on this toothless Japanese carrier force. He could have done that with what he had available. Uh, but, you know, you're not going to go against doctrine. You're not going to be innovative. Uh, certainly not, you know, in a few hours' time when you're fatigued like they were. So that's why I say in the book, 
that given at the time, this is his his call to go north was very supportable. And like I mentioned before, I, I'm not a Halsey apologist at all, uh, but I do think his, his 24 October decision was supportable, was the correct one. But overall, though, he did a very poor job in the, in the battle. He had the, he had the largest naval force on the planet uh, during the battle, and he was never able to bring the full power of the third fleet to bear at any point during the battle. There are a lot of reasons for this, uh, but the numbers are indisputable. So, for example, the, the, about 10 days before, uh, he, had, he had struck Formosa because he was tasked to neutralize Japanese air power in the region before the invasion of Leyte. So he was doing this. And on the 12th of October, he was able to send, he massed his entire force uh, for this mission. He sent 1,400 offensive sorties and one uh, at Formosa. And then on the 24th of October, when he's striking the Kurita force, and this is the biggest single Japanese task force of the entire war, he's able to muster only 252 sorties. So he, he does not handle Third Fleet well, but I think he should not be criticized for his 24 October decision to go north. That makes a lot of sense, what you've outlined there. I think it's really easy in hindsight for people to criticize decisions that go along with doctrine when it does not result in the optimal outcome. But it's important to remember that commanders are making decisions within the framework of that doctrine. In this case, the concentration of force, keeping the, the fleet together, etc. And then for the entire course of the war in the Pacific, the United States Navy had been trying to hunt down and neutralize Japanese carriers. That had been everything they had been trying to do for years. And so prioritizing that mission in, in that way or in the way that Halsey did, does seem more justifiable. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
Maybe the most famous event from the battle is the heroic defense of Taffy 3 and its six American escort carriers, as they were attacked by a large Japanese surface group, including four battleships and eight cruisers. In your book, you of course talk about this action. Everybody who writes or talks about Leyte Gulf has to talk about it. But you've named the chapter the Misunderstood Battle Off Samar. When you just look at the ship lineup on both sides and the fact that the American ships would come within range of Japanese guns, it seems like the American ships are just going to get destroyed by the Japanese. But that's not really what happened, and the Japanese would not achieve a complete and total victory in this action. Why do you think this is the case? Yeah, the Battle of Samar is fascinating, and it's it, it's entirely misunderstood. Like like I try to I try to explain in the book, and it's. It's a battle unlike any other battle in naval history. It is the only time that a surface force uh, was attacking aircraft carriers while under air attack from the aircraft and those carriers. This had never happened before. So uh, in most accounts of the battle, it's portrayed as this David and Goliath contest between Japanese battleships and American destroyers. And it, it's much more than that. It's a complex air-sea battle uh, with a huge American air power component to the battle. So, uh, like you said, the, the, the order of battle for both sides would indicate the Japanese would have no problem winning this battle and probably winning in short order. So the American force is called Taffy 3. That's this escort carrier group that has six escort carriers, and these are built upon merchant hulls. So they're not very fast. In fact, they're quite slow. They're about maybe 17, 18 knots max speed, and they're unarmored. Uh, they're not well escorted. There's only three destroyers there and four destroyer escorts. But what people don't don't uh, remember is that each of these escort carriers has about 30 aircraft, and there are three escort carrier groups acting, operating off of Leyte. Taffy 3 is the one further to the north. It's off Samar, and that's the one that the, the Japanese encounter first. But there are two other escort carriers in the area. So there's a total uh, escort carrier groups in the area. So there's a total of 16 escort carriers uh, nearby, and each one carries 30 aircraft. So this is a real factor in the battle. So during the entire day on 25 October, which is when the battle occurs, the Americans launch 441 sorties from their escort carriers. Uh, but to be fair, only about 200 of these are active during the time of the battle. The battle takes place from about quarter to seven to about 9.15-ish on the 25th. So two and a half hours or thereabouts. And there, But there are 200 aircraft uh, active during this time. So we just, just talked about the entire third fleet could only muster 252 sorties on the day before, and here the escort carriers launched 200 aircraft uh, to defend the escort carriers during the during this battle off Samar. So it's a complex uh, air-sea battle. Uh, and there are many reasons why Taffy 3 wasn't annihilated quickly. Uh, we'll just go through a, a couple right now, but Kurita, who's in charge of the Japanese force, never understood the nature of the battle he was fighting. Uh, he was surprised when he encountered these carriers. He thought that he had come across part of Third Fleet, and he he never identified these carriers as escort carriers. And 
Therefore, he fought a much different battle than he would have had he known that these were slow escort carriers. Uh, but also, you've got to give the American commander, who's a guy named Sprague, full credit here because he fought a very good battle. So Credo fights a very indecisive battle, and Sprague fights a, a very uh, well-handled battle. Right off the bat, he launches all his aircraft. He lays smoke, and the Japanese uh, remarked that the use of smoke was very effective uh, after the battle. Uh, he uses his escorts to buy him time, so he does send the destroyers out to attack the Japanese, and he heads southwest to open the distance from the Japanese. So even though the Japanese are operating uh, a, a a fast force overall, with, with much greater speed than the American escort carriers, they never did close, at least the main part of the Japanese force, never did close the distance during the battle, during those two and a half hours. So uh, the two commanders acted very differently during the battle. but. So the gunnery aspect of the battle is also not examined because it's very hard to hit ships at long distance with, with gunnery. And uh, at the start of the battle, this is how the, the battle unfolded. It was a long-range gunnery context, contest between the Japanese cruisers and battleships and the escort carriers. So, but it was hard to hit ships at a distance. And this has been shown throughout the war. And just a few numbers here to back that up. So. There's a large naval battle off Java in February 1942 when the Japanese fired 1,619 8-inch rounds during the day at long distance at an Allied force. Of those shells, only five hit. And two days later, they were uh, uh, in combat against a British uh, heavy cruiser with two other escorts. But... Again, they fired a large number of 8-inch rounds, 1,171 rounds, and two hit. Uh, there was a battle off of the Komodorsky Islands in 1943 off of Alaska, off of uh, the Aleutians, actually. They fired 1,611 rounds, 8-inch rounds, at about 20,000 yards. So, again, long-distance gunnery contest, and only two hit. So, and, and these are daylight actions and good conditions. Uh, the best possible conditions, but it's very hard to hit a ship at long distance. So at Samar, uh, it's anything but good conditions. So the Americans are laying smoke. Uh, there's, there's smoke throughout the battle. Or early in the battle, uh, Sprague runs his force into a squall. So he hides successfully in a squall for some period of time. And keep in mind, the Japanese are under constant air attack and constant surface attack throughout the battle. So it's very hard to develop a fire control solution for your long-range guns when you're when you're maneuvering under air and surface attack. And unlike some accounts uh, where you'll see the Japanese were able to use radar-directed gunnery, that's not the case. The Japanese did have radar at this point in the war, uh, but it was not good enough to direct uh, gunnery. So Japanese gunnery. Uh, did not have the advantage of that. So, for example, then they could not shoot through th through smoke because radar was not a factor. So, under these circumstances, the Japanese actually performed fairly well. Uh, there were six of these escort carriers, like we talked about, in Tappy 3, and four of them were hit during the course of the battle, and one of these was sunk. The Gambier Bay was sunk. And overall, the Japanese did gain 45 hits. On these escort carriers, so that that's a credible 
performance. They also sank uh, two destroyers and a, and a, a, a destroyer escort during the, the course of the battle. So, and, and they overall, they, they did gain uh, somewhere in the area of 80 or so hits on these ships during the course of the battle. Uh, but their gunnery was uneven overall because there were other times in the battle when these destroyers would approach to within, say, 4,000, 6,000 yards of a Japanese battleship and they wouldn't even be hit. So uh, the Japanese did uh, perhaps better than should be expected. But overall, sinking ships with gunnery at long range is very difficult. And they, they did a, a fairly mediocre job at that during the battle. But this, this should not be unexpected. Uh, meanwhile, though, the Americans are, are attacking, American aircraft are attacking the Japanese throughout the battle, and they succeed in sinking or crippling three heavy cruisers during the course of this battle. Uh, and also, the destroyers also uh, crippled another Japanese heavy cruiser. But all these factors uh, combined to make Korea break off the battle at about 0911. Uh, uh, he had thought he had won a. a, a major victory he thought he had sunk at least two carriers with gunfire then late in the in the battle his destroyers fired torpedoes at the at the escort carrier group they didn't hit anything but he thought that they were successful so overall he thought he had scored a a large and a major victory uh that was really not the case but Krita, keep in mind had had a greater mission to fulfill and that was to continue to move south uh and get into the gulf so he broke off the battle uh, after about two and a half hours and, and prepared to move south in accordance with, with his orders. It's a really good example, I think, of underestimating the challenges faced by ships attacking into the aviation assets of their enemies. The Japanese are continuously dealing with air attacks, constantly having to maneuver to avoid air attacks while trying to hit targets that are running away as quickly as possible. Yeah, it's no surprise that. that on this battle, aircraft outdueled ships. That had been the case throughout the war. So uh, people that look at the battle fail to realize this is an air-sea battle. It's not just uh, destroyers attacking battleships. We've went through several myths of the battle, why it started, what Halsey did, the, the battle off Samar. And looking back, there, there can be a temptation to believe that the Japanese were close to achieving victory due to Halsey's decision and the rapid retreat of Taffy Three. But when reading your book, you make it very clear that they were not very close at all to accomplishing any kind of, of crushing victory. C could you discuss that a little bit? Yeah, that, that's clearly not the case, as you point out. So, and, and the, of all the myths of the battle, that perhaps is the easiest one to disprove. Uh, but why that still exists, I, I don't know. But it's, it's, all you need to do simply is look at a chart, look at the, the forces concerned and the distances involved, and realize that Japanese had no chance uh, even after the Battle of Samar, which we just talked about, that they had no chance to get, to get into the Gulf. So after Kurita breaks off the battle, this is about a, at 9-11 in the morning that we talked about, it took him a while to regroup his forces. They were all spread out because he had lost control of the battle. So he, it took him a, a while, a couple of hours actually, to, to regather his force. So at that point, he radios his boss, Toyota, that he's going to proceed into the Gulf. Uh, but then, and this is about at noon, but then at 1236, he decides he's not going to do that for, for various reasons. Uh, and 
that's 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 complex but he he acts out of conscience not to sacrifice his 15,000 men on a hopeless task so we talked about the fact that the Japanese force shows up here five days after the invasion and that was Korea's biggest fear that he was going to uh, face a situation where he, he was going to be uh, entering the Gulf to attack empty transports. And that's pretty much what would have happened had he pressed on. So for various reasons, but that being the primary one, there was no gain in sacrificing his, his command. He did not press into the Gulf. Uh, so he, he attacks, he moves towards a phantom contact of the North to attack that. Uh, it's not there, so he doesn't attack that. But he he then presses on through San, San Bernardino Strait, and he survives the action. In the process of this, he he radios his boss Toyota and tells him what he's going to do. And Toyota even has no faith in his own plan. Toyota does not tell him, "No, you will you will stick to the plan. You will attack into the Gulf. You will you will do what you can." Uh, but no, he does not tell him to do that. So battle is over. But the, the mythology goes that Kurita had the chance to press into the Gulf, and had he done so, he could have shot up everything in the Gulf. And after he did this, then it would have constituted a significant setback for the Americans and uh, probably a decisive point in the war. And this is, it's not just uh, some historian saying this, it's in all the official accounts of the battle. Uh, the American uh, historian Samuel Elliot Morrison was the first first one to start this by saying that there was nothing in Creta's way had he had he decided to go into the Gulf. And the opposite is 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 true. There was a large American force that outnumbered Creta significantly between him and the Gulf, and that was the Seventh Fleet that had fought this Japanese, this small Japanese force in Surigao Strait earlier on the on the 25th and they had plenty of time in fact they were positioned in the eastern approaches to the gulf by this point so by this point Crete is down to four battleships two heavy cruisers two light cruisers and eight destroyers and uh the seventh fleet could have mustered a much larger force six battleships nine cruisers of various sorts and something like 39 destroyers so it doesn't sound to me like there's nothing in Krita's way, uh, you know, uh, to prevent him from entering the Gulf. There was a major American force there with the advantage of position because there, there's only two ways into the Gulf. Uh, so they would have guarded the main one. Uh, they would have ambushed Krita's force just like they had done to the force in Surigao Strait. And, of course, they had the advantage of uh, significant air support, too, from the Taffies and also one of Halsey's test groups, Task Group 38.1, which was his largest task group, is coming up from the south. So a larger American force with uh, significant air power could have stopped Creta from getting into the Gulf. So uh, there's no way he would have gotten into the Gulf. And once he, let's let's suppose though that he had gotten into the Gulf, there were, the, the major amphibious shipping was gone at this point, like we already talked about, but there were a number of Liberty ships and LST still in the Gulf. Uh, they were not loaded with men and supplies, but they were in the Gulf still, and they were being held there until the battle was over. And they had, Americans had moved these ships to the northern part of the Gulf. So how would the Japanese, again, facing no doubt, 
smoke in the region under constant air attack and constant surface attack, how would they have found and destroyed these ships? Uh, maybe they would have, but they would have sunk some portion of them had they gotten into the Gulf. But uh, you know, not that many. But let's suppose, for the sake of discussion, that they had a lot of success and they had sunk uh, many of these LSTs and many of these Liberty ships. Well. The Americans produced over a thousand LSTs during the war, and they produced 2,700 Liberty ships. So, I don't think that the loss of a of a fairly small number of these would have been a crippling blow. Yes, it would have uh, had a temporary impact on their their timetable, but it, there's no way that this could have been a significant victory. So, the three-headed mythology of the of the Japanese loss victory. At Lake Day Golf does not stand up to any kind of scrutiny at all. Thank you for joining me here, and thank you for chatting about your book. Have a wonderful day. You too, Wesley. Good luck. Reminder that was Mark Stilley, and you can pick up his new book, Lake Day Golf, A New History of the World's Largest Sea Battle, wherever you buy your books. <laughs>